All right, kids, I need your help as we get going this morning. Uh, I have a few questions for you. This, the first one I think I'm realizing is more for the kids that go to school. The homeschool kids might, maybe you have a different answer here. But for the kids that go to school, what is the best part of your school day? Shout it out. We're not at school. What? Gym? Okay, what about another one? That's what I thought you would say. That's what you always say when you get home, right? How was your day good? What's the best part? Recess. All right, this one's a little more for everybody. Um, what is your favorite day of the week? Sunday, Keeners, Saturday, Sunday, right? The weekend. All right, one more. What is the best single day of the year? Christmas. Or Arnold's birthday, which was yesterday. Christmas. You guys would make good little Jews. Did you know that? You'd make good Israelites. We're looking at the book of the covenant, the laws that God gave to his people, Israel. And, uh, and we're, we're looking today at the last set of laws, the last batch. And, uh, and the laws that we're looking at today have two categories, resting and rejoicing. Those are pretty good laws, right? Like, kids, how would you feel about that? Your mom and dad are going away and your dad sits you down. And he says, Son, we're, we're going to be gone uh, for the whole afternoon, I have two rules that you need to follow. Rule number one, rest, relax, sit down, take a break. Rule number two is have a party, celebrate. Those are good rules. I think we would all like those rules. We love Saturdays, the weekend. We love summer vacation. We love feasts and parties and holidays, right? Because God made us as humans with this built-in need for rest and rejoicing. It's right at the core of who we are. You guys keeping up? You find the fill-in? Rest and rejoicing. And yet, as with everything in this world, our, our sin has corrupted and twisted the way that we rest or don't rest and in what we rejoice. So turn with me to Exodus 23. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you, go slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. Uh, I have nothing of value to say. It's all about God's Word this morning. So we want you to have a Bible open on your lap. And, uh, and we just encourage you, if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read easily, take this one. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. So Exodus 23, we're going to start at verse 10. Um, if you're missed the switch, and you're like, hey, I thought we were in Philippians. That means you weren't here last week, um, but that's okay. Um, we're, we're back into Exodus. Um, we've been working through Exodus since last January, and, uh, and we kind of stretched our legs in a little bit for Philippians, and uh, we're back in Exodus now for four weeks, so last week and this week and two more, uh, and then we'll go back to Philippians, and that'll take us through till Christmas. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing. We're going to be back and forth between Exodus and Philippians. Um, we'll finish Exodus up in May and Philippians in June. Um, that's where we're going. But today, uh, Exodus chapter 23, and we're going to look at verses 10 to 19. Let me, let me read it for us, and then we'll take a little closer look. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. Six days you shall work, 
But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep a feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. And you shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall... Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the, blood, offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So as I said, there's, there's kind of two sets of laws here, resting and rejoicing. First verse, the first, first three verses, sorry, verses 10 to 12 uh, are one basic command, rest. That's the first command, rest. They were to plant their fields and harvest the crop for six years in a row. And on the seventh year, anybody seven years old today? No, this year, anybody? A couple seven-year-olds? Here we go. The seventh year, it rests. The, world, the, the word used there is turn it loose. Let it go. And, and they would just let whatever wild thing grow in that field. And, and it's not specifically said here, but, but Leviticus 25 kind of builds on these laws, explains them in a little more detail. And, and there, um, it connects it to the Ten Commandments, this law of letting the land Rest and specifically the fourth commandment. Any kids know what the fourth commandment is? Going through it in a head. What's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest, the seventh day of the work week, right? And this was a Sabbath rest for the land. Even farmers today understand if you, if you grow the same crop year after year on the same plot of land, um, the land gets depleted of its nutrients. It gets tired and, and it needs rest. This law is also connected to the last set of laws that we looked at, the laws about the poor and the, and the weak and the helpless, um, because they were supposed to let just whatever grow in the fields naturally and the poor people could come and harvest it and, and feed themselves and their families. And whatever the poor people left behind was left to the animals. They weren't to harvest the field or cultivate it. And they were to do that in their grain fields and in their grape vineyards and in their fruit orchards and their olive orchards. And so you can imagine um, different fields would probably be on kind of different seven-year cycles based on when they were planted. And, uh, and so anywhere you went at any given year, there, there would be fields here and there that, that a poor person could go and, and harvest food. But for the farmer, this was a sacrifice, and, and this took faith. Uh, to let your field sit empty for one year out of seven, I'm, I'm no math whiz, but Google tells me that's a 14% drop in productivity, right? That, that's, a, that's a risk. That's a sacrifice, but that's the command. The Lord said, let it, let it rest. Verse 12 is the law of rest for the people. 
Six days you work, the seventh day you rest. And not only do you rest, but your work animals rest, your slaves rest, your foreigners that you've hired. I know some of you guys are reading that and you're like, aliens? They had aliens back there? Well, it was people from other countries. Everybody gets a break. Why rest? Look at the end of verse 12, that you may be refreshed. Refreshed. This word got me excited. I first saw it and uh, I was actually sitting at the coffee shop and Josh was behind me doing some other work. I was like, but you got to, this is cool. You got to see this. Uh, it's the word nephesh, um, which as, as a noun, it means like living being or, or soul or, or passion and emotion or breath. And, and so it's the same word used here, but as a verb, meaning they, they would be refreshed. So it's not a bad translation, but there's that richness behind it, right? They'd be given life and, and soul and passion. It's not just a, a light kind of surface refreshment. It's not just kind of a drink of water or two minutes to catch your breath. Um, this was soul refreshing. That's what Sabbath was about. Sabbath rest is rest that refreshes your soul. This is the law that God gave them. That you need to be refreshed. This is a gift. God's laws are so good if we can just get behind it and see it kindness to them that he would command this. Um, we are finite beings, right? Kids, you know what finite means? This may be a new word for you. God is infinite. Okay, write that down. God is infinite. That means that God is not finite. That's what the end at the beginning means. So he has no end no limits. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present at once. Think about that. It just it makes your brain hurt. He, he has no end. We are none of those things, right? We are finite. We have limits. Put out, put out your arm in front of you. It only goes so far, right? It stops. You, you can only run so fast. You can only lift so much. You can only work so hard and, and you need rest. You come to the end of yourself. And, and that's true of us, not only physically, it's true spiritually, right? We need rest because we're finite beings. So let's do a little bit of hermeneutics here. Um, hermeneutics is just a fancy word that I use to impress you. Um, it, it just means how to read the Bible, Right? Good hermeneutics keep us from understanding a passage wrong and, and applying it wrong. So I think the Sabbath is a good place to kind of dig into this and maybe pull the curtain a little back. Uh, one of my goals as a preacher is not only that you would listen and, and hear what God's Word says, but that you'd be learning how to dig it out for yourself, that you'd be learning how to, how to feed yourself from God's Word as well. And I hope that's happening much more regularly than just Sunday morning. But the Sabbath has a lot of confusion around it. Are we required to keep the Sabbath? Is it okay to, to work on Sunday? to go shopping on Sunday or to a restaurant on Sunday. I was, I was chatting with Joel and Tara before they left. And Tara's home growing up? Nope. You do not go to a restaurant on Sunday. That is sinful. Can't do it. We've been Exodus long enough. I hope you have one answer in the back of your mind that, that comes up right away. We've circled around it a bunch. This wasn't written to you, right? 
This is old covenant. This is God's contract. Kids, who is this God's covenant with? Who's God making this covenant with right now? Who is it? Yeah. Israel. Are, are you Israel? I'm not Israel. This is God's covenant with Israel through Moses, not us. And so much bad theology would just evaporate if we would stop kind of looking at the commands made to Israel or the promises made to Israel and, and trying to apply those directly to us. Um, they don't apply to us. So as you're kind of reading through the Old Testament, that's one of the questions you have to be asking. Who's this written to? And there are times, um, I think maybe Noah is a great example. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. And if you look at that covenant, it's made with humanity. Anybody here part of humanity? Hey, that is us. That one, that one we, can, we can relate to. But this one at Mount Sinai is God making a covenant with Israel. And so these commands don't apply to us directly. The, the dietary laws, what you kind of can and can't eat, the tabernacle laws, laws about tattoos and oxens and putting holes in your ears with an awl, all kinds of these things. We're like, how does that apply? Well, they, they don't apply directly to us. We're, we're eavesdropping on a conversation between God and Israel. And there's a lot we can learn from that, but we need to understand our place in this conversation. But the Sabbath has an extra layer of complexity to it. If you look at Exodus 31, 17, the command of the Sabbath is connected to creation. God says, this is a, a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And so some will say, see, the Sabbath goes back to creation. It's right from the beginning. It's not just Israel. It applies to, to all of us. Um, there's something unique about the Sabbath. They're right being rooted in, in creation. Um, here's how I think we kind of navigate that. Look at creation. See God working for six days and resting for one. Um, was God tired? No. Now, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't need rest, but he rested for our benefit, right? He was to show us something. It does show us this, this cycle of work and rest is built right into creation. It's part of the fabric of creation. But if you read Genesis 1, there's no command there. You don't walk away from Genesis 1 with a command to keep the Sabbath. I think we see it's wise to rest. We see the world was made to work in these cycles but the Sabbath command in Exodus is, is an old covenant application of that wisdom. There's wisdom in the Genesis story and, and, and the old covenant, the Sabbath. This is how we're going to apply that wisdom here and now. So how do we apply that wisdom in the new covenant? What does it look like for us? And, and, and we have the New Testament. This is our law. This is, this is the law of Christ that, that we're under. So as we're reading through the New Testament, what do we see about the Sabbath? Well, Romans 14. Paul's talking about eating food, sacrifice to idols, um, something that a good Jew would, would never do. Um, but under the new covenant, and, and some in the church understood this, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a big deal. And so Paul is kind of helping them sort this out. And, and his overall point is, it's not wrong to eat the food. But there are some who have a weak conscience. They're, they're, they're struggling with this. That's hard for them. They, they haven't made that transition. And that's okay. Don't, don't, don't make it hard for them. 
Well, other people were a little more firm in their faith. They were a little more confident in the new covenant. And they could eat that meat. They weren't bothered with it. And, and Paul's point is that you're fine. You're free to eat or not to eat. But the issue was don't, don't make it a law for other people, right? And, and he uses the Sabbath as part of the, his example in that. So Romans 14 verses 4 and 5. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. So he's accountable to God. And he will be upheld for the Lord will make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So he says, if you want to observe the Sabbath, go for it. If that's your your habit, that's what you've done growing up, and you feel you don't want to give that up, go for it. Take that Sabbath rest. But don't make it a law for everyone else. Everyone should kind of, you, you, you serve your master, but that's not, a, that's not a law from God. That's a conscience issue that the way that you want to do it, and that's fine. Galatians 4 pushes it a little further. Paul says, But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Whose slaves do you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So he's saying, be careful, right? If you make observing the Sabbath back into a law, you're going to fall in the same trap that Israel fell into. You're going to find yourself trying to find your identity your, in, in obedience rather than in grace. You're going, to, you're going to try to prove yourself before God. Look how good I am. I keep the Sabbath. God, aren't you impressed with me? And Paul says, oh, don't go there. That doesn't work. Don't don't go back under the law in that way. Don't think the Sabbath keeping makes you holy. And he he says that's that's weak and worthless and worldly. So there's wisdom in taking a day off. Doesn't matter which day it is. The early church uh, began meeting on Sunday, almost immediately after Christ had risen. And so even as we talk about Sabbath, that's, that's Saturday. And here we are on Sunday. We're already kind of breaking the mold here, right? And that's okay. That, those rhythms of rest, refreshment, is, is the heart of it. And we ought to be able to rest. We ought to take time to breathe. Not to uh, is to basically claim deity, right? To say, I don't need rest. I am like God. I can just keep going. I'm strong enough. I can push through. I'm different from everyone else. I don't need, and usually at that point, they die of a heart attack. Um, Because we need rest. Our culture is so obsessed with productivity, with with getting ahead in this world, right? And it's it's built right in. It's, it's, It's the cult of self. Our productivity is the offering that we place on the altar of self. Look at how good I am. Look how important I am. Look how necessary I am. Look at my productivity. I don't rest. And so we feel guilty about rest because it's it's going against that religion that wages in our hearts. Rest ought to be a worshipful thing. We ought to rejoice in admitting our weakness by resting even celebrating our weakness, trusting God, you can be God today. I don't need to work. I don't need to try to have everything. The the world's not going to end if I just sit down for a day. It takes faith. 
Might be a sacrifice there. That's hard. But we need that. Find those things that you find particularly refreshing and enjoy them. Don't feel guilty about that. Glory, give glory to God as you rest in those things. Proper rest, got this one kids? Proper rest says he is God, so I don't have to be. It's worship and it's wise. Colossians then pushes this idea of the Sabbath one step further. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul says this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or regard to festival or new moon and Sabbath. So pause there. Um, we're not bound to those things. The, 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 the festivals, the laws, what you eat or drink, the Sabbath, those laws are not binding on us anymore. We're free in regard to the Old Testament laws. Why? Because he says, these are a shadow of things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. That's gold right there. How do we understand the Sabbath? It's a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 17, we looked at this last week. Don't think that I've come into the world to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to show the, the substance of the shadow. What do you do when you see a shadow go by? Look up. What was that? What was, the, what was the substance? What was the real thing that made the shadow? You see the shadow and you can kind of see the form of it. It's not clear. It's, it's fuzzy. It's, it's, a, it's a representation. It's similar to the reality, but you want to know what, what was the reality? What was the substance behind it? The Sabbath law was a shadow meant to cause us to, to look up to try to find the substance. It's a question looking for an answer. The true meaning of the Sabbath is Jesus. He's the substance. Right from the beginning of creation, God made us with this deep longing, this need for rest, to be refreshed. And if we're honest, even Sabbath after Sabbath, weekend after weekend, we never really get there, do we? I mean, how many people get like halfway through Monday? When is Saturday? Is, are we over the hump day yet? How long until the next day off? We're always looking forward, working for the weekend. When's the next vacation? When's the next holiday? When do I get to retire? When do I get to rest? Jesus came, what did he say? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Not a day off. Not a, not a long weekend. Not a holiday. Rest. Augustine famously put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. It's like our bodies need, we call it recreation. That's a great term, recreation. We need restoration in rest. Our souls need to be recreated. We need to be restored in Jesus and in Him and Him alone is there true, meaningful, deep rest. As Jesus gave His life on the cross, 
having lived the perfect life of obedience. He's hanging there, dripping with blood, and he cries out, it is finished. The work is done. Sinners are made holy before the judgment of God. Eternity in glory has been bought and paid for for the undeserving. Joy and rest eternal is given as a free gift. There's nothing left to work for. It's finished. Are you weary? Are you working hard to to impress God? Maybe a little bit fearful that that it's not going to be enough, that I'm not going to kind of cross the bar, that that it's not going to impress Him. I can tell you, anything you do in your own strength is so twisted by sin, so faulty at its core, it won't impress Him. It won't be enough. We need to rest in Jesus. This is a command. Rest. Stop it. Stop striving and working, and worrying. Put your faith in Jesus. He is the true and full Sabbath. He's the substance of its shadow. And heaven is going to be that full, perfect rest in Jesus. Every long and tiresome work week or month every drawn-out battle with sickness, every futile struggle against the sin in our own hearts, every, every pain and tear and sorrow finished. We'll have rest, rest in Jesus. That sounds pretty good. Sounds like what we're created for. And that leads to the doorstep of the second point. Because that Rest is worth rejoicing. That's something worth celebrating. Look back at Exodus 23. I'm read again from verse 13. God goes on to say, Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you have sown in the field. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So first command was rest. The second command is rejoice. Rejoice, celebrate. They were commanded three times a year and, and more, actually, but here, three times a year, have a party. It's Christmas. How many guys are game for Christmas three times a year? Yeah, kids are in. Moms are like, whoa, <laughs> that's a lot. Three times a year, it's Christmas. Now, the first thing that God is clear about is what they are to celebrate. They are to celebrate God. They are to celebrate God. Verse 13 tells them not to take the names of other gods on their lips. 
And verse 14 says, these feasts are to be kept to me. Those two are connected. That's significant. Don't talk about other gods as if they did something for you. Don't even bring them up, but have a feast to me. You see the contrast? And Israel would struggle with this. This was not easy for them. They, they moved into a, a region of the world where they were surrounded by these other religions. Everyone around them had their own God, their own idol, calling out to Baal or Asher or Dagon and, and making these sacrifices and saying, oh, look what, look what Dagon did for me. Oh, look what Baal did for me. And Israel was pulled in all these different directions. And, and if your harvest wasn't going well, you'd be tempted to look over and go, should I, should I give that a try? But the point was this. I am God. I am the Lord Almighty. Don't even bring up those other gods. I, I don't think they were supposed to like never say their name. Like, oh no, I, I spoke it by accident in conversation. That's not the point. The point here is, who are you giving credit to? Who are you calling out to for help? And who are you honoring when that help comes? Don't even bring them up in the context of honor and worship. And, and look, we kind of think our world is past this, right? Nobody talks about gods anymore. Nobody has you know, an idol that they, that they pray to. Think again. We do. We've just changed them to make them a little more palatable. We just kind of have made them fit into our secular world. Now, maybe not entirely because we talk about karma. We talk about fate. We talk about destiny. We talk about the power of positive thinking and the law of attraction. All right, if you, if you think positive things and speak positive words and then those things are going to find you, those things will come to you, that, that's an idol. Some of those things have subtly and even at times not so subtly made their way into the Christian conversation. Just believe in yourself. You can do it. Just have faith. What does that mean? Faith in what? Seems harmless enough. How, how could it possibly be a bad thing, right? To tell someone to, to believe in themselves. If it helps them feel better about themselves, if it helps them succeed, how could that be wrong? Because it's our modern day of calling out to another God. And when God is gracious and gives something good, then we don't give him the credit. We give the credit to the power of positive thinking. We give the credit to, to positive self-esteem. And all credit belongs to God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He deserves the worship. Another word for credit is worship. Be careful what you give credit to. Be careful what you call out to when you're in need. I'm falling on my face here. What do I need? Do I need to think better things about myself? No, I need to, I need to know who God is. I need to trust in Him. The Lord says, don't even, don't even let these other gods come into your mouth. Keep three feasts to me. And this was so relentless, right? Consistently, Israel was, come back to me, worship me again and again and again, every, every festival, every year, over and over again. And we see here the start of verse 15. The first feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 16 
the feast of the harvest of the first fruits, and then later in, in 16, the feast of the ingathering. So just to give you an idea of kind of the, the calendar, the flow of things here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened kind of late March, early April. Uh, it was a week-long feast, and it led right into the Feast of the Passover. That, so that's kind of where our Easter sits. The Feast of the First Fruits then was to happen 50 days later. It, it's how it got the name Pentecost, and that's the feast they were celebrating when the Holy Spirit came. Um, but it would happen then... Um, late May or early June. And, and this was kind of just as their first crops were ready to harvest. The wheat and the spelt were starting to, to turn and ready to be harvested. And then the last feast, the Feast of the Ingathering, that was September, October. And the, the last of their crops were now harvested. And, and it was actually uh, the Day of the Atonement was the 10th day of that month. And, and the Feast of the Ingathering was the 15th. And so those feasts kind of blended together. And each of them is this just rich with meaning and symbolism. If, if we were going through Leviticus, we'd spend a lot more time on each of these, but we got we to gotta have some idea. We talked about this first feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, back in April as we came through Exodus 12 and 13. It was actually during the Feast of Unleavened Bread um, leading up to Easter. But in verse 15, it says that they were to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time, the month of Abib, for because in it, in, in that month, they came out of Egypt. So leaven or yeast was a symbol for sin. It was a metaphor in the way that, that yeast works into a loaf and spreads and, and affects everything and the way that just a little bit is so powerful. And so as they left Egypt, they were to, they were to leave behind the, the sinful practices of Egypt. They were to get rid of that leaven from Egypt, the practices of Egypt, and and be holy to God, set apart to Him. So that's the, the symbolism there, was to remind them that they were called to be a purified people. And so part of this feast is that they would hunt down and sweep up and actually take out and burn all of the leaven, all of the yeast out of their house. And it was to remind them that they were to hunt down and sweep up and burn any of the sinful practices that they found in their own hearts. That's how they were to worship God. That's how they were to prepare themselves to celebrate the Passover. They were to worship God by getting rid of sin. Getting rid of sin. And the next feast, the feast of the harvest of the first fruits. This came at a key time in their year. They lived in a day when basically everyone was a farmer, right? That's how you lived, by planting and harvesting your food so you could eat. And this feast came in the season when the first of the summer crops were just ready to be harvested. And they would harvest some of the best of the best of the first crops to ripen, and they'd bring it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. This was an act of faith, right? Think about it. The, the harvest only came once a year. You store up everything into your, into your cupboards, into your silos, and you hope that it lasts you until the next harvest. This has got to take us all the way through the calendar year. And by this time next year, everything you're eating is the stale leftovers from last year's harvest, right? It's like that day before mom goes shopping when there's no snacks left. 
right? The cupboards are empty. And then mom tries to make supper and she's out of everything. So you get this weird kind of mashed together meal of foods that don't really belong together, right? That's what they're at. They're, they're eating the last scraps, but the harvest is almost ready. We're about to have everything come in. We're about to be refilled again. But before you fill your cupboards again, you harvest the first and the best and you give that to the Lord. But we're hungry. We're still eating the old scraps. Yep, take it to the Lord. Offer it as a sacrifice. And it was a way of saying, thank you, Lord, for how you will provide. What an amazing act of faith. Thank you, God, for what will come. And then finally, the feast of the ingathering. This was the culmination of it. By this time, the work was done. The crop had all been safely brought into the barns. It's everything the farmers here are hoping to get to, right? That's the goal. The harvest is done. And at that point again, they were to stop and celebrate. And this feast was to begin uh, with a week of camping. They, they would build these little booths, these little huts, and, and live in them to remind them about how they wandered in the wilderness and how the Lord cared for them. But then it ended with this great celebration of the harvest. So verse 17 then, three times a year, all the males were to appear before the Lord God. And the reference to the males here um, doesn't mean that women didn't come. Um, they absolutely did. But it meant that the men had to come. Men, there was no excuse. I'm too busy this year. I can't make it. Send the family on. No, men, you be there. Because the men were the head of the household. It was expected that the men would lead their families in worship. Men, do you lead your family in rejoicing in God? Do you lead your family in worship? Your wife is a huge asset in that and a great help and a strength and a partner, but, but are you the one leading the charge? If you're dragging your feet and your wife is leading the kids to church and you're just kind of coming along, don't think they don't see that. Don't think the Lord doesn't see that. There's a reason. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not that mothers aren't an integral part of parenting. I think we all know that's true. But the father was the one responsible to lead the way in that, bringing up his children. They take the lead. Man, are you leading your family in worship? And they were to appear before the Lord God to gather together in this formal assembly of worship. And the whole point was rejoice. Celebrate God. Now, Tuesday morning, 7.56 a.m. You have to understand Monday's my day off. So I start Tuesday, study all week, learn it, leading up to Sunday, sermon Sunday, I preach my heart out and I crash. And Monday is my Sabbath. I'm, I'm refreshed. Tuesday morning is my Monday. I just about got the kids off to school. I'm all packed up, ready to head the coffee shop to start studying for next week's sermon. 7.56 a.m. I get a text from Josh. Hey, looking forward to what you have to say on verse 19. What? What's he talking about? Flip, flip, flip. Right. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. 
You all saw it the first time I read through and you went, what? What? Thanks, Josh. Um, What am I going to do with that? What does this mean? Well, um, you'll be glad to know you're not the only one asking the question. Um, Everyone's asking the question, what does this law mean? And, And I think the bottom line is we don't have the cultural or contextual knowledge to really get behind what's going on here. It's not clear. Um, Here's what we do know. There are three commands. I don't know if you noticed, that last section is just kind of tagged on there, verses 18 and 19. And each of those commands points back to one of the previous feasts. So, Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. That's the Passover. That's the feast of unleavened bread. And he's saying, don't mess this up. When you bring the Passover lamb, when you shed its blood, you better have gotten all of the leaven out of your house. Don't don't come to me with unrepentant sin and think that that's okay. Verse 19a the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. That's the feast of the first fruits, the second command, the second festival. Don't bring God your leftovers. Don't bring him the damaged stuff and, and keep the, the better stuff back for yourself. Well, I, can, you know, I, can, I can give God you know, my leftover time in the day. I can give God what's left at the end of the month from finances. I can, I can give God the, the bruised and broken things. He says, no, give me the best. First and foremost. And then verse 19b. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. So it has to connect with the Feast of the Ingathering, right? How to celebrate that. There, there are numerous different um, guesses that people have made. Some have said maybe it was too luxurious. Maybe that was really a, a spectacle and they weren't to go that far. Um, others have said maybe hard to digest, Um, Others have said um, that it would be animal cruelty. Like, how mean would that be to boil the the young goat in the milk that was supposed to be nourishing it? Um, I don't think those ones, those ones don't really grab me. I I don't see that. What what I see, I think, is more likely, because we've seen this a few times throughout these laws already, is he's warning them about cultic rituals that happened around them. I, I suspect, partly because this is, linked with the Feast of Ingathering. And, and we do know that there were some, um, some of the, like the fertility thing was such a big deal. And, and there's this weird kind of interplay between the mother and the young that, that maybe that was a sacrifice the neighbors were doing. To, to sacrifice a, a young goat in its mother's milk as a way of, of, of worshiping their God, of thanking their God for a good harvest or, or pleading with him for a harvest. And, and God is saying, no, don't, don't, don't follow those other worldly uh, false God religions. You worship me for the harvest. That's, that's my best guess. But whatever background was behind it, whatever the specifics of it is, um, we do know because of the way this is organized that the opposite of it is what? The opposite of it is celebrate the Feast of the Ingathering. Praise God. Thank Him for the harvest. That's the main thrust of all of these verses. They're to rejoice. A little worship God to celebrate him. Do you know how many times that's commanded in scripture? I don't. It's a lot. It's a lot. Psalm 33. Shout to the Lord, 
O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully the strings and with loud shouts. That's a party. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 135, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it's pleasant. We just came out of Philippians, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The people of God ought to be a happy rejoicing, celebrating people. How sad, how tragic that the church is often stereotyped as being stuffy and dusty and boring and lame. That our attitude could become sour. That we might be known more by what we're against than by what we're excited about. That our songs could become dry and doleful. We ought to throw parties that put the world to shame. We ought to gather and sing in a way that blows the roof off this place with with excitement and joy and passion. Now, our parties aren't going to impress the world. We get that, right? We shouldn't expect them to envy us or even understand us. Our parties are going to be different. Um, There's something different about worshiping the Lord than than trying to get wasted. And and they maybe won't be excited about this because they don't understand it, but they ought to see it and wonder. We ought to be a celebrating people. I've heard Christians quibble, even over Christmas and Easter. Well, we don't really know exactly when Jesus was born, so, you know, why Christmas just doesn't seem like... The timing of Easter is way off. By the way, it's not. We know when the Passover was, but I've heard people say it. Neither of those celebrations are commanded in Scripture. Are you kidding me right now? Like, are we going to sit here and argue about whether or not we should have a party about the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to rescue us or about whether he died for our sins and rose again? Like, sure, it's, it's no law. You don't, you don't have to, and, and if... And if, if you want to do something different, that's fine. But, but what's going on in your heart if you aren't eager to find every opportunity to celebrate the goodness of our God, to rejoice, to have a, a feast together, claim those days. Hey, you're, you're bothered by the, the materialism? Awesome. Push that out and claim that day to celebrate your God. Teach your children about it. Show them your overflowing joy in who the Lord is. That's a a hard thing. Let them see your joy. There's one celebration that is commanded in the new covenant. It is the central celebration of the new covenant. And it's just like we saw the Sabbath being a shadow of the things to come. These feasts were part of that, right? These festivals were a shadow of Christ pointing forward to the substance So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, yes, it it calls us to to live a holy life. But Jesus, at the last Passover dinner, having celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
then took unleavened bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. See, the problem is we're not unleavened. We're not without sin. We're not an acceptable offering to God. And Jesus said, it's okay. I am. I live the perfect life of obedience and I was given as a sacrifice in your place. Celebrate. Because Jesus is the unleavened bread. The feast of the harvest of the first fruits was celebrating that first taste of the crop, the first bit ready to harvest and in hope of a greater harvest to come. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Look at this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Celebrate because Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. Just like that first piece of the harvest was a promise, there was better things to come. And just like everyone who is in Adam, who's connected to Adam in our sin, will face death. So everyone who is in Christ, everyone who's connected to Christ by faith, will have spiritual life and will see the resurrection just as he was resurrected and and glorification just as he was glorified. And if Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest, then what's the final harvest? What's the feast of the ingathering? 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ. It's the resurrection. It's the final resurrection. It's when Jesus comes again and we're taken home to be in the presence and glory of God. Celebrate because there will be a final harvest. It's coming. And what single celebration brings that all together? It's not Christmas. It's not Easter. It's not Thanksgiving. It's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. Invite the worship team to join me. We gather to remember the death and resurrection of our Lord. It's His sinless body as the unleavened bread broken for us. It's His resurrection as the first fruits. There's this this proof and promise of what is to come. and, And we proclaim His death until He comes eagerly awaiting that great day of harvest. What a hope. What a wonderful thing. That ought to get us excited, church. We ought to celebrate that. That should make our hearts sing. So uh, let's be a people who rest in Christ and who rejoice in Christ. And so that's what we're going to do now as we celebrate communion together. So I encourage you, if you're a believer this morning, we ought to come rejoicing, resting in Christ, celebrating. As we, as we take that bread and that cup, it's saying, I'm done. I'm resting in Jesus. I'm done trying to prove myself before God. All I have is Christ and celebrating who he is and what he's done on our behalf.